Hey, welcome to the Awoken Word podcast. This is your host, Anuj Rastogi. I only have a little bit of housekeeping today, and that is an apology. Leave it to a Canadian to give you an apology. It's been quite some time since uh, I published a new episode. I had been traveling for quite some time around the U.S. and India, had some whirlwind adventures and just fell behind on a few things. But uh, we do have a number of action-packed episodes and conversations coming up for you. So that's it. That's the only apology you're going to get, I think. My guest today is a woman who can make almost anyone feel small with her incredible graciousness and resilience and sheer sense of compassion. Her name is Lisa Fitzpatrick. And I met Lisa at South by Southwest EDU. Those of you who listened to the last episode with the amazing Darius Baxter will remember that I was out there at South by Southwest EDU. It turns out that Lisa was actually on the same opening keynote panel with Darius. And I met her shortly after that panel and was enthralled by just the little bits of the story that she had shared of hers and her journey on that stage. I didn't know that 24 hours later I'd be having this conversation with her, which was overwhelming to say the least. She is among the first, perhaps even the first, United Methodist Church pastors who's also a woman. Lisa is also the founder of the Apex Youth Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this conversation may be one of the most personal and emotional conversations that we've had yet on Awoken Word. The conversation went from the very big to the very small and very proximate quite quickly. We talk a lot about Lisa's own experiences. We talk about an incredibly traumatic, violent incident that she was the victim of, and yet somehow took being a victim and turned it into conquest in changing the world for youth around her. We talk a lot about racism in the world at large and racism in particular in America today. The incredible role that humanity and compassion has played in her life and what she's been able to contribute to the world around her, as well as the incredible need for humanity and compassion in the general day-to-day lives of people today. We also talk about other topics like politics, like the prison industrial complex, which she is very close to feeling the impacts of. It's a very emotional conversation. It's something that I wasn't really prepared for, if I'm honest with you, but I'm very fortunate to have been there. Lisa, thank you so very much for being open for your time that day, for the conversation that you had, but even more importantly, for all of the work that you do. For everyone listening to this conversation, please do forgive any of the background noise that you hear and the chatter and the talking. Again, keep in mind, this was one of the quietest areas that I could find at South by Southwest EDU in the convention center. There is noise in the background, but it was not an opportunity I wanted to miss in terms of having this conversation with Lisa. So here you have it, my conversation with Lisa Fitzpatrick. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you.
I'm here in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest EDU with an incredible woman, Lisa Fitzpatrick. Lisa, it's good to have you here. Nice to be here. I was really touched by your story and feel like only got just a small sliver of what that story is. So for those folks who don't know you, who is Lisa Fitzpatrick? Uh, Lisa Fitzpatrick is a United Methodist pastor, a mother, um, and the executive director and founder of the Apex Youth Center, a project of Apex Community Advancement. Okay. And where, where are you located? I'm located in New Orleans, Louisiana. Okay. In a neighborhood called Central City. Okay. Which, according to FBI statistics, is one of the um, most dangerous neighborhoods on the planet. And one of the, it is the most incarcerated neighborhood on the planet. Really? Yes. So are you originally from Louisiana? No, I'm originally from Moore, Oklahoma, um, okay. in South Oklahoma City. Uh, I lived there until I was 17. Um, after graduation, I decided to go be a rock star in Los Angeles. That kind of didn't work out for me. Okay. And uh, so, um, but anyway, my, my journey has uh, led me around the country and back here. There was some interesting points in this conversation yesterday with the panel around community and connection and relationship, a lot of those things that seem to be lost and either isolating us from each other or just making the world, I think, a lot less loving and caring than it perhaps used to be at some point in time and definitely less so than it should be. So what is sort of the backstory on you? Like you kind of explored a few avenues and then you've ended up as a pastor and a founder of a youth center in the most as you're saying, incarcerated vicinity in the United States. How does that happen? What's led to this? Well, uh, it has been quite a journey. Um, I can tell you that I think what has led to it is listening. I don't do that so well sometimes, but when I do, it, it seems to be the path that I am supposed to be on when I listen. Um, and I listened to a group of young people who showed up in my living room and found that there was no place to go in New Orleans for teenagers. In fact, it was illegal for teenagers to gather in any place, like the mall or places <coughs> like this, and there was just no place to go. Um, so I listened. Um, I have had a, what some people would consider a rather circuitous route to my path, but I think that it was all led to this moment. Um, I was actually called to preach when I was 16. I'm 56 years old. That was 40 years ago, almost to the day. It was at a spring revival. And I walked up the aisle <coughs> on a Friday night. If you know anything about Southern revivals, Friday night's call night, right? Okay. Friday night is call night, and that's when they ask if the Holy Spirit is calling you to preach the good news and I knew I knew that I was being called to do this ministry and I knew I was being called to minister with young people and I knew that I was calling being called to do so as a pastor okay I walked up the aisle and I was quickly ushered to the back okay for prayer and counseling because I was told that this is not for you and by this, for you, not for women? Not for me, because of the way I was born. Um, not for me, because I was born a woman. Okay. 
And in my 16-year-old brain, you know, we don't make some of the best decisions. I began to question everything. Right. Because I knew, right? And I began to question whether I had gotten anything right. Right. So I decided to swing that pendulum as often a 16-year-old will, way the other way. So I began a different journey. Okay. Um, and is this, it, was it unprecedented at that point for women to be pastors yes, in the church? Yes, it was not only unprecedented, it was not, particularly in the denomination that I was in at the time, it was not allowed. Okay. And I don't know why I didn't quite get that message. <laughs> but, um, so, I, um, I struggled with that. Uh, how did we not have access to it all, mm -hmm. right? To not just the ability to, to receive what I call the good news. Of right. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, but to spread that in, with intention. So um, I then went to Los Angeles, just packed up my little Camaro as soon as I graduated and headed to L.A. Um, was blessed to just do some things in my life that when you're young, you can do. Right. Toured the United States, did some things in the music industry, and um, came back to Oklahoma when I had my child, my oldest child. Um, after an injury, I could no longer tour, but I began to use what I knew about what I called whole body learning, how we know within ourselves how to do something and experience something before our intellectual brain can sequence and think it out. So I began to use those techniques that I had learned as a musician and a dancer um, in the public health field. I became passionate about how do we teach this. Um, okay. And I began to work um, with with very high-risk um, populations. But before that, when I had come back to Oklahoma City from Los Angeles in the mid-80s uh, to visit my parents, I um, was a passenger in a vehicle in my neighborhood. I knew that there was a 7-Eleven right off the freeway. Mm -hmm. And this was in the 80s, in the days of big hair and pantyhose, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope neither one of those really come back. But <laughs> anyway, I had reached down. We were going to meet my father for dinner. I had reached down and I had grabbed something and I had one of those big long 80s nails too and it just ripped my pantyhose. So I asked my roommate who was with me if she would stop at the 7-Eleven so I could get some pantyhose. As we pulled off of the freeway, a car came up beside of us, and the exterior headlights went off, and the interior headlights went on. I looked over and saw two children struggling with something. They were 10, 11 years old, you know, they were young. Whatever it was they were struggling with, it took two of them to lift it up to the window. And because of the world that I lived in, my world didn't even register that mm. danger was happening. Even as I caught a glimpse of something shiny, 
they weren't going to, they were just playing. They were children, children in the back seat. And as they leaned out the door with this object, because my brain didn't live in that world of fear and that children would shoot someone, instead of ducking, I leaned back to get a better look. And as I turned to my roommate, I said, what are they? And before I could get the rest of the words out, the glass <laughs> shattered. Um, and, you know, you heard this shot. Um, you, it was like this sound, um, and the car sped off. I, um, I have a gap of memory loss at that point. Uh, she knew my face was bleeding. I was gratefully only grazed. It was actually the shattering glass that caused more um, okay. damages. It was it grazed right <laughs> under my eye and across my nose, and lodged into the transmission. But luckily, didn't stop the car. She drove to the Seven Eleven. Um, she tells me that I walked into the Seven Eleven, and like nothing had happened. I went to the shelf, grabbed the pantyhose, that the clerk was freaking out. Um, you were totally in shock. Then. I guess I was totally in shock. Um, and I'm kind of grateful for that, that I have this memory gap. Because what I do remember is the children's faces and how really terrified they were. Really terrified. I do have some recollection of getting back in the car, um, because she had called, this was, you know, days before cell phones, right? You had to go to the yeah. payphone, you had to dial the operator, and they got a hold of the police. And the police said something. We're not coming over there right now. We want, can, we want you to drive across the freeway to the mall, and we'll meet you in the parking lot. What I learned is that they had some intel that there was going to be a gang related uh, incident that night. Um, I learned that it was probably a gang initiation. I learned later from the gang members I used to work with in Los Angeles when I went into public health as a young man broke into tears that he believed it might have been his gang because they were infiltrating Texas and Oklahoma. And what he said was part of that initiation was that if they did not draw blood, see, they didn't believe life mattered. People think that it was about killing someone, and it really wasn't. So were, were you, was it mistaken identity with no. you and your roommate in the car? No, it was intentional, um, because the initiation was to draw blood from a random person. At age 10? 10 to 11, yeah. You have to be willing to. Now, what I learned, I don't know if I was specifically targeted, because at that time I had this big white blonde hair and, you know, um, that what I have learned from working with many gang members is that it buys silence forever, especially um, yeah, because when you kill another gang person, the police don't, yeah, I've, I've witnessed this 
in many cases, and this is not in any way to vilify the police, they do an outstanding job. Right, yeah, yeah. But, but we know that just by looking at FBI statistics and statistics that gang-related murders are often unsolved. Right. Sorry, guys. Young white women murders are always solved, for the most part. There's a, like a 90% rate on those. If you can draw blood, you buy silence forever. So I don't know if I was specifically targeted, if it was a matter of convenience, where you were, but it was an intentional drive-by, gang initiation. It was shoot a random person day, and I won. So, as my memory came, was, you know, whatever was going on in my brain at the time, again, I was just doing my routine. Mm -hmm. And, um, the police told me, as they did that whole trajectory, it's the days before labor, and they had lasers, you know, they took right. this stick out, this dowel stick, and they found where the bullet hole was. And they said they didn't know how I was not shot in the side of my head, why I was alive. And I told them what I had done, that it hadn't registered to duck. And they said, if I had, I would have been killed. If it would have registered, I would have been killed. Instead, I was wondering what the kids were up to. But it was just this epiphany that I had. I couldn't understand why the children were in that situation. And I never, not for a minute, and I guess I'm grateful for that period of shock because maybe then I would have been angry, I would mm -hmm. have been upset, but I had this moment where the last thing that I had remembered until I have a brief recollection of the phone call and, a brief, and being there with the police and the EMS. I did not have to go to the hospital. Um, they were able to clean wow. up my wounds and find out that it was a, um, uh, but they were able with that rod to see that what now looked at like burn marks because a grace was actually a, a burn. Sure, yeah. As opposed to the cuts from the glass that that is where that was the trajectory of did the you when you looked over do you remember making eye contact with either of yes, the boys I did and I just couldn't figure out what they were doing why they would have this toy they were leaning out the window and their eyes there was nothing but terror in their eyes I have to I, I can't help but wonder if the very fact that you didn't look away and you actually made eye contact with them and they when they're children, they saw you as a human being, and it was enough to just recoil a little bit or whatever. That you know, that half an inch made a difference. Oh yes, um, the yeah, it was right here under my eye, literally half an inch. It would have and, been. And my sorry, how how old would you have been at this time? I was twenty-four. So, so had this been your first brush with? gangs and violence, like, was this sort of the tipping yes. point for you? It was. Um, I mean, I lived in a neighborhood. I knew there were gangs there. Um, uh, and I was a single mom living in what housing I could afford. And I knew there was activity, but had never understood that level of violence. Coming from Los Angeles, I lived very close to South Central and, and East LA. I lived in Southgate and the Downey area. And so it was all around me, but I never, mm -hmm. you, you just, you live in a different world. You can live in, I've 
one of those things I discovered, you can be on this, a block away and a world away at the same time. And that was some of the things that I began to understand in that moment. How did we get here? How do we live in a world where two children felt like they had to kill or be killed that night? Two children in the most powerful and wealthy country in the modern era. They, we, we, we talk often, and that's what I've always felt they were. We talk often about the exploitation in, in other countries and the recruitment of child soldiers. This is exactly what this was. It was yeah. the recruitment of child soldiers under the oppression of extreme poverty with the promise of either protection or death. Yeah. It, it's, we, we in the United States don't have a moral high ground here as long as this continues. But I did not know that until that moment. So... Gangs were like what was on the TV. You know, they were always in their mid-30s and they always looked like the bad guy. <laughs> so how, how do you, <clears throat> what, what happens from there that turns you towards these young people instead of away from them or against them? I don't know, it, and except I just <clears throat> go back to, their, to those tiny little faces. Um, I knew I had never considered myself a victim. Now, I will tell you there is still a level of PTSD that I suffer to this day. I hate to ride as a passenger in a car because I'm not in control. <laughs> My 31 years we've been together, I'm the driver. So I think there's some things that just ingrain in you um, that you try to overcome and then you just go, oh well, I don't need to overcome this, I got bigger things to do. Um, but I, I, what brought me to there is this realization that I was not the victim because I just wasn't. That night, the victims were holding the gun. I was collateral damage in a war that neither one of us started. You've been working with youth like this, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but you've been working with youth like this for, for years. What, in your experience, leads to a situation where, primarily, I imagine, in most cases, it's young boys and men, that they would go to that length? What, what, what is happening in their world that that now becomes an option? Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. Yeah, please. What are the assets that you value most, the physical assets? Of my own or like mm -hmm. in my Of your own. Your Creative home? thinking. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're, but most people consider their physical assets. And I often ask this question when we're trying to get to the wise. And, and, and truly, I don't know the wise. And often I think sometimes we are searching for the wise because then we can say, well, that why doesn't apply to me, so I'm safe. Mm. as opposed to how can we get underneath the why and eliminate the problem. So, yes, we need to find the whys, but in a way that we can work together, not as sure. a way to separate us. Often when we search for the why, it's a way to separate us. But one of the things that I've learned from the kids who teach me, from the kids who carry the guns, um, 
because I didn't understand it. And I still don't understand it, but I'm beginning to accept it, is that in this United States, in our hyper-materialistic culture, we protect our homes, our family, our cars. It is legal in even the most liberal states that you may protect those assets with deadly force. Mm. Okay. What if you don't have any of those assets? What if your only asset in the world is what you believe keeps you safe? Because it, it is our homes and our cars that we feel this sense of safety and security. Right. It is within our neighborhood units and our schools that we feel, feel this safe and sense of security if we live in a privileged world. Mm -hmm. But if we do not live in that privileged world and we have none of those assets, like I said, it, even in the most liberal states, you may protect those assets with deadly force. I don't believe in that. I don't, if, if somebody came to me with a gun, I'd say, what do you need? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I'm not going to kill them. I, I don't believe that any human life, not even is worth whatever object you're after at this sure. moment. But I'm just saying this is, it's not my belief system, but it is ingrained in American culture. But if you have no asset except for what you perceive is your street value, your reputation, then it is absolutely ingrained in our culture that you would protect that with deadly force. So one of the things that keeps coming up in my, in my world, and I, I believe is a consistent red thread through every, whether it's inner conflict or conflict within countries or amongst people, is the brokenness of men. Mm -hmm. I think it, to an extent all people are broken, Absolutely. but men have this unique ability to spiral into self-destructive behaviors when certain circumstances are around them or certain mm -hmm. environmental factors around them. And women, again, this is a sweeping generalization, will more often not resort to violence or the same types of uh, self-destructive behaviors as men will. And if you look at whether it's terrorism or corporate greed or exploitation or gang violence, more often than not, at the end of the day, the architects of that and the executors of that are men. And so if you ask me that question, I don't believe that I would be above those behaviors if I was in that same ecosystem or environment. I don't know. I've never been tested mm -hmm. like that, and I'm fortunate to have never been tested like that. So I think that that is in all of us as like, you know, that, uh, that ability for good is also, I think, in all mm -hmm. people. But what is it that uh, about the young men that you've come across in your life that have gone through these things, like what is it that they're feeling that drives them there before they meet you? Um, one thing that I hear from them over and over again is a profound sense of hopelessness, a profound sense of this is all there is, uh, and a profound sense of if this is all there is and there is no hope, I at least need to show I am a quote-unquote man. Mm -hmm. And I think that this toxic environment that we've put our young men and boys in as a society, these expectations, we speak of toxic masculinity. Yeah. Toxic mas masculinity is not just a poison 
against women. It's a, it's also poisons the very men that possess it. Yes. Because poison is poison, and it kills anything it touches. Yep. And so, you know, I'm as a mother of both boys and girls. I see it affecting both. Um, I see. I see these expectations of behaviors from both my sons and daughters that society places on them, mm -hmm. and it's poisoning both. So when we first started doing the work and we went around the neighborhood, we found something absolutely even more unique in New Orleans, Louisiana, post-Katrina, that all of my curriculum that I developed in Los Angeles working for with gang members for 10 years that I was not expecting. When I worked with gang members in Los Angeles, this is what they taught me. They taught me that this is where I learned that we're not on all on this journey and some are further ahead than others. Mm -hmm. Pardon my language, that's just BS. Sure. Okay? Yeah. Because we're not all on the same journey. We're not supposed to be on the same journey. But what I did learn is that we are all on a journey and it's incumbent upon us, if any of us are going to truly move ahead and stay ahead, that we need to link arms and move together. I learned that we all as human beings, the basic core of what we want, and David spoke of this in different words yesterday, did, yes. yeah. that even when he speaks with people who we've labeled as terrorists and the bad guy, we all want a better today than we had yesterday and a better tomorrow than we had today. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't always agree with how my students in the 90s were going to tame that. They, they wanted to be, you know, head of this gang and they wanted to move up to be the landlord of, you know, 7th Street. And by the way, landlord just means you get to assign who gets to, you know, what drug territory. But okay. um, not landlord like we think of it. <laughs> so, hey, they're all collecting, yeah, I guess. It's all collecting, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're all assigning real estate. And so it was a beautiful thing to learn. And we were able to build upon that. When I moved to New Orleans post-Katrina, I would say, where do you want to be in five years? And even to gang, um, you know, previously I would say that and they would say, you know, I want to move up in the gang. I want to, I want, you know, buy my kids a big house. I, you know, I want to get more money. Clearly half of the young men we spoke to, where do you see yourself in five years? Half looked at me with eyes that were blank and said on a t-shirt if you know anything about New Orleans and southern culture when you are on a t-shirt that's where they saw themselves it means your funeral has been preached these were kids as young as 14 and 15 where do you see yourself in five years on a t-shirt so we had another level of absolute there is nothing for me. Again, in Central City, in that, the last five years, it's the last 10 years, actually. Um, we, Louisiana just moved out of the number one incarcerated state. Right. Oklahoma beat us, but that's only because of some machinations. But we were, you know, our country is the most incarcerated country in the world. Louisiana at the time, up until last year, was the most incarcerated 
state in the most incarcerated country in the world. New Orleans was the most incarcerated city in the most incarcerated state in the most incarcerated country in the world. And my neighborhood, Central City, still is the most incarcerated neighborhood on the planet. Fully 50% of males over the age of 18 have been incarcerated, are on papers or parole, coming out of jail, or are in prison and list an address. What's the... Uh, That's hopelessness. Like what's, what's the demographic breakdown? Like is, are these primarily black neighborhoods? Yes, Central City is predominantly an African-American neighborhood. When you say half of the young men there would be incarcerated, would that be consistent across Latinos, blacks, whites there as well, or is this a unique situation within one community? Um, up until the last two years, um, now we're dealing with gentrification and um, displacement. Sure. But up until two years ago, the neighborhood was more than 90% African American. Uh, so, you know, we're dealing with a 53% unemployment rate among males, which, you no, know, coincides with your, because, yeah. you know, you can't get it. You do your time, whether it's one month or 10 years, you still can't get a job yeah. when you come out. Or you've lost your job. Um, so yeah, it's predominantly African-American community. Not that you know, being Canadian puts Canada in any position of being on a high horse or having the moral high ground because every country has got its own demons you know, and skeletons in its closet. But to an extent that the prison system here is an industry and that it is entirely motivated by profit and market forces to incarcerate people, not for the purposes of changing society or cleaning up society, but specifically to make, whether it's 50 or 60,000, whatever it might be from state to state, for having a prisoner in there. If the system is built around that, then every prisoner that goes through it is just another commodity, is another cog, is a disposable asset, right? So this doesn't surprise me because there's all of the environmental factors that kind of create and breed and continue to perpetuate crime and then you have a system that's just waiting with open arms to take them in with no regard for destroying the rest of their life. So if this is, uh, like I, I don't know if you share a similar view on this, but to me I, I wonder like how, how does a system like this continue if people are aware that this is what the system actually does? How does it continue? It continues because it's incredibly profitable for a very powerful few. I believe that the prison industrial complex is our new slavery. I believe that it is one of the most evil forces upon the face of this earth. I'm just going to call it out like it is. I'm sure I'm going to get a call from somebody somewhere in my church if this <laughs> But I, I've said it from the pulpit, and I will say it in the podcast. It is one of the most evil forces I have ever personally encountered. I have a former foster son. I'm really the only person he can call mom, right? He, first offense, young African-American, strong athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Barely before his 18th birthday, grabbed his cell phone back from the two kids who had stolen it the day before. They made a claim he had a gun and shot it up in the air. No gun was found, no residue on him, 
no evidence. He was convicted and sentenced to 18 years without parole on a first offense. What are I the, what don't are the, even know where he is right now because he has been traded on the market of, because he is an athlete, he's a boxer, and he's a hard worker. They trade him among uh, correctional centers in Louisiana as a commodity. And I don't know where he is at any given moment. When was the last you saw or spoke to him? We spoke about two months ago. He was getting, he had gotten indication he was getting ready to be moved. He has called his girlfriend and we're trying, but, but see, now I can't call him because I'd put all his money on his card at that prison. <coughs> well, they take all that and they don't transfer it to the new place. It's, it is the biggest racket I can, uh, you can, yeah, cost me a dollar a minute to talk to him. How did we get here? Like how? I, this is the question I've been asking since those two babies pulled that gun. How did we get here? And what can we do to shift it, to change it, to move that needle somehow, some way? How did we get here? You know, it, because slavery was outlawed, so we figured out some other way to do it legally, you know, we're always doing machinations like that, trying to, you know, get off on a technicality. I think that's what we've done. I want to, I want to ask you this and, and, you know, feel free to, um, you know, decline, but if they were not young black men, would we still be in this place to an extent? Or is it just that we've said we're, we're, we're kind of in that post-racial era, They're just happen to be, these just happen to be the troubled people and we're just going to ignore it. So I don't believe we're in a post-racial era I, at I, all. Neither do I, <laughs> for the record. Yeah, no, we are far from it. Uh, I absolutely believe it has something to do with the color of their skin because I can watch um, from my window young white college students buy the same drugs as young black men and the only ones being arrested, the, the young white college students might get arrested and get a ticket and a note home to their mom. My kids go to jail. That's, that's the reality of the situation. It is, go to NOLA.com, look at the crime stories just from the last week. You know, two white men stole $350,000 from their boss. They got probation. A young uh, black man stole $90 and got 11 years. It's just, it's blatant. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I believe it does. Now, I have a little bit different view. Um, so I have two definitions. I believe that we are all, we all possess and are capable of prejudice. Sure. We all prejudge. <laughs> Agreed. We see somebody and, and we've had an experience before and we prejudge. The actual racism, I believe, is instituted. It is, in, it is impacted by people in power. And in the United States, I am not sure that a person of color 
can actually be racist because I believe that that word is an institutional word. It's just it's sure. just a definition. Yeah, yeah, definition. I, 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 I think it's it's we're def we might be defining the word different. And I think if there was a country that was where the people in power didn't look like me, then there could be institutional racism against people who look like me. I, I, mm -hmm. Although my experience in, in those countries when I've traveled is, is not. Right. <laughs> it is distinctly different. And, and my, my children of color, my own flesh and blood children of color, are treated differently than my white children. I see it in the malls, I see it in the stores we go in, I see it. I, I see it in their eyes when my daughter, when she was 15, went to go get some lipstick and instead was detained. And when I walked in the door, the woman said, oh, you're her mother? Well, you know how they are. I needed to make sure she wasn't stealing. Said this in front of my child. So yes. It is, it is institutionalized, it is sanctioned mm -hmm. in our very systems. What, um... Sorry, I, I start preaching for a minute, I'm sorry. <clears throat> No, 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 I, this is, <laughs> what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you end up on the realizations that you've had and millions upon millions of other people don't. Two people could have had the exact same set of circumstances up until you know, your, your, your night on that, that freeway and you would have walked away going 180 degrees differently on that same situation, right? Like someone would walk away with hate or anger or you know, increased levels of prejudice or whatnot, but you didn't. What, what made the difference for you? Um. So part of that is my experience, it's, but it's the breadth and the depth of my experience and all these experiences layered upon each other. Um, the two children who shot me were a Latino. I was the single mother of a beautiful Latina daughter. I couldn't impose, and, and half of my family, like I have a whole branch of my family who is from Latin America. So I guess in my experience, it didn't occur to me to impose that experience upon their heritage and their ethnicity and their race. Mm. I believe that in that moment, um, my faith tells me to see the Christ in all. And it can be really difficult sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> for me um, to see the Christ in people who are... Um, as we say in the salad, just being ugly for ugly's sake. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but these layered experiences, uh, I was blessed to be in a family that, and blessed to have two grandmothers that never saw the world as binary. There was tons of fuzzy lines for both of them. Mm. And learned from them. Um, so yeah, I think it's the, the layered experience and the listening. I've always tried to be a listener. Now right now I'm a talker, but 
but I've always you have tried much to, to share. I've so. always tried to listen to what God is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying, and and what the Christ in all of us might be trying to relay. Now, I am not a person who believes that it is God's will. I, to this day, I don't believe it's God's will that either those two babies shot me or that I got shot. So I, I'm not a believer like that I'm in this predestined, mm. everything happens for a reason. What I do believe is that we can take these experiences me back to your question that's what drives me what can we I us together recreate out of this mm -hmm. chaos and destruction well especially considering For that we created the chaos and destruction yes. it didn't just exist independently no, no God called it good so it was good right we are good um, I also don't believe that we are we're also complex, though. Yes. Yeah. But we were created good. So we can define that in us each and every time. You had shared the story of teenagers just showing up at your house, and this sort of <laughs> led to this next chapter. I'm curious if you can kind of just talk about what that circumstance was, because I, I do want to get into your work with Apex, which sounds incredible. but. Everything so far is coming from your own very intimate, personal experience. These don't seem like academic exercises where you saw some neighborhood with kids that were struggling and you figured you could help out. Like, you've sort of not even lived on the periphery, but you've lived through the consequences of this chaos. So I'm, I'm curious how you've navigated yourself through that. Like how, these kids show up at your door, now what happens? So I was... I kind of moved myself up that corporate ladder in public health to okay. the C-suite. I always call it the, you know, the, up to the corner office with the view and the window I wanted to <laughs> jump out of every day because it's not why I got into healthcare yeah. to, you know, push papers around. I wanted to be with people. Um, moved to New Orleans, bought a big house. My husband called himself a kept man because he had retired and he was Mr. Mom. And um, we had four children, took in four foster children almost immediately. You know, it was just how we were living. Um, we had dreamed that one day, 20 years from then, this was 10 years ago, I would retire and we might do a youth center. We'd even picked out the name, the, this apex, always pursuing excellence. Um, be careful what you wish for. I know, yeah. <laughs> I know. And, um, right, and, and be careful what you make a plan for because I think God laughs. So, because we had a plan, right? Mm -hmm. We had a careful plan. And uh, we, we moved in, and what we didn't know about New Orleans is New Orleans is a block-by-block block city. And you see, the way the realtor took us in every single time to our house was through the blocks of the big houses that had been built 100 years ago. What we didn't know was that our house was literally the last house before this turn with this other block. And this block was where all the shotgun houses were built 100 years ago for those who would serve in the larger houses. And these houses are all still standing? Yeah. And so New Orleans does this. It has these block-by-block -block cities. This neighborhood I described to you earlier, Central City, 
is literally one of the poorest zip codes. If you live in this neighborhood, uh, in these addresses, you automatically qualify for free lunch because it's not worth the paperwork to figure out the three people who don't, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's three blocks away from St. Charles Avenue, which is the wealth, one of the wealthiest avenues in America. So this is how New Orleans is laid out because it's a 300-year-old city before modern transportation. Everyone had to live close by. Right. So I didn't know this. So these were the kids that were showing up were from this other block. Um, and then they would tell people from the other blocks, you know, further into this. Um, and sorry, forgive me you know, not to be crass, but okay. is it still the case now that block by block you would have predominantly black families, people living in one block, and then you'd have predominantly perhaps more white, but at least a more upper class or middle class families? Yes. The echoes of history are playing out Absolutely. even now. Yes. And um, and there and if you and if you superimpose the old plantation lines, wow. you'll see where the big house was and where the quarters were. How do we move on from history when we <laughs> haven't left it? I know. <laughs> and um, so the come to my neighborhood one time. I'll take you on a walk and you'll see where the red line was. It's instantly visible. I would love to take you up on that. We've never you been to New Orleans. Anytime. I would love to. It is. When I take people <clears throat> on a neighborhood walk, it is instantly visible where the red line used to be. You know, the mortgage line where they would write mortgages or not write mortgages. Um, so, so these are the kids that, that showed up. They saw us move the video games in. They saw our eclectic family move in. And like I said, two boys showed up the, I don't know, like, the next day, asked if they could help unpack any boxes and play video games with my sons. But I knew that they hadn't come because I had these two teenage daughters. Sure. There. And um, yeah, they'd come to check out my teenage daughters because they're boys, right? And I've got beautiful daughters. <laughs> and they had, a, they had a story. They figured it out. They put some thought into yeah, this. Yeah, they did. They had a, they had a plan. Yeah. I got to admire them for that. I'm like, yeah, honey, you did not come to play with my five <laughs> and six year old boys because you're 16. But it was okay, you know. I just and I was raised that way. Like my, my grandmother's, we were the Kool Aid house, and my mother sure. was always like, you know, whatever. You know, we were just the house kids played at. And like I said, they invited a couple of their friends, and within we moved in on Thanksgiving. By the first week of January, that was the week I like looked around and saw, counted thirty-five noses all coming in and out of my den on a Saturday. Wow. But then I discovered things. I, one thing they were coming for was to eat. We were feeding, we were just grilling hot dogs. I just grabbed some more hot dogs out of the freezer, put some more yeah. on the, you know, grill. Because that was basically the only meal they were getting all weekend. Um, chips and soda maybe from the gas station. There was no stores around. Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt the store was closed coming from California. Sure. I drove yeah. three miles to go to the grocery store. But if you're on a bus and that's a bus transfer and three miles, that's a long way to go for a grocery store at the time, right? So um, I didn't know these things. This is what my kids all would t teach me, right? You know? Um, and um, yeah, so we just started this. And that's when I would ask them, you know, well, isn't there, why, why are you hanging out with this old woman? And they'll say, that's Saturday when I counted. And he looked at me and he said, because you're the first person to ever open the door. 
And again, how did we get there? How did we get there? Like, it doesn't, didn't occur to me to lock the door on Saturday because it would just be exhausting getting how up to answer your, it all the time. How did your neighbors react to this? <laughs> well, I'm blessed. I don't know. There are some things that I believe that when we listen, God puts us in the right place. So I believe we listened and got put in the right place because we had these wonderful next door neighbors, Tommy and Carol, that's who actually came out to greet us. One reason why we decided to move there was because they saw us looking at the house, came out to greet us and just bragged in the neighborhood and how wonderful it was and loving. And, and so we were like, yeah, let's do the house with the great neighbors. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So Tommy and Carol are retired and they were there and like, they would end up coming over and like, let's chip in on some hot dogs, okay? Because they'd see all these kids coming over, kids that they loved, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so we were really blessed. Um, shout outs to Tommy and shout Carol. Shout outs to Tommy and Carol. <laughs> um, even to this day, like they're just right there with us all the time, even though we don't live in that house anymore. Um, so we, uh, we decided, okay, we started talking to a little church and the vicar around the corner was like, how do you get all these kids? I've been trying to get kids over to church. I go, well, you can't just invite them to church. If you feed them, they will come. So we started taking turns and, and we would go do the hot dogs in the church um, lot and play outdoor like sand lot. He'd let us use that as, so we started playing outdoor games and doing stuff at the church. And then we'd go back on our house on the other side. So we'd go back and forth, right? And then I would just tell the kids to say, okay, anybody who wants to come to church, um, just show up on my porch on Sunday morning. We'd have to take two, three carloads, 17-year-old <coughs> boys. Why are you coming to church with me? First person I ever asked. They just needed to be asked. They just needed to be just asked. needed to be they let in. They needed an open like... door and let in, asked. So they start talking about what if we could do this. So we talked to the church and we wanted to do a summer camp. Let me know if I'm going too long. But we're going to do a summer camp. And the summer camp, um, so the church, all the little old ladies got together. Oh, we're going to do this, you know. And, and you think we can get about 10 kids? I go, I'll spot you 10 kids out of my living room, you know. So um, we ended up having 85 kids enrolled. Wow. Over half signed up for the 13 to 17 year old junior counselor program because you know you're way too cool for summer camp once you reach 13 sure but yeah. you're not too cool to be the boss yeah yeah so but that also told us the teenagers were desperately they were willing to write wipe the snotty noses of five-year-olds for six weeks out of their summer six hours a day than be on the street so after the summer we we're thinking oh yeah well maybe one day we'll do a youth center September, I tried to come home from my job, and I couldn't because it was tape everywhere. And when I finally found a back way in, yellow tape, yellow police tape, when I finally found a way in, I came to the house, and my daughter's best friend, Ashley, was sobbing, collapsed in, in Alexa's arms. And I found out that her cousin, a young man who would come occasionally, um, had been killed in a driveway, random drive-by. Only the bullet didn't miss the temple this time. Um, a gang had come blazing down the street, another just random, we're gonna shoot anybody because we can, because it was an initiation. He had been killed on the corner, I mean, line of sight with our house. And I brought Danny home, 
we brought, I went home, brought all the kids. We had eight kids in the house at the time, the four foster kids and, the four, and our four kids. Sat everybody in the living room and said, I don't think we have 10 years. We've got to do this now. The whole family agreed. We knew it would drastically change our lifestyle. Within three days, we had incorporated. We didn't, I, I had no, I still to this day have no idea what I'm doing, how to run a nonprofit. Um, it drastically changed our lifestyle. Nobody would fund us because they wanted me to pick and choose who walked in the door because they could pick and choose the outcome. It's still a struggle to this day. We had to sell our house and our cars and our furniture and to support the center. The little church let us um, be there for a while. Uh, it is still a struggle. Um, now I will make full confession that they were going to do it the thing last night. And we had to furlough all of our employees last month. And for now, the center is closed and it's back at my house um, because we lost all our 2019 funding because people love what we do. But the last sorry but letter said something about liability and worried about some of their corporate responsibility. It was all just veiled lawyer speak mm. for we want you to pick and choose who comes in the door. Because uh, they're trying to improve the outcomes, at least on paper. Yes. And there's got to be room for a trauma center. That's all I got to say. Back in my healthcare field, you know, it's why trauma centers keep closing because insurance companies don't want to fund them. Um, and I will tell you, in the last 10 years, We've counted more than 40,000 hours of volunteer times our kids have given. I'll put that up against any fancy, well-funded program ever. Um, we have transformed a neighborhood. Everywhere we go, a donut hole appears in the murder map. They've even tried to do a study. All they will say is, you know, correlation is not causation, and I know that. I know I'm in the medical yeah, field, yeah, right? Yeah. They don't know why it happens, but it happens. Because yeah. there's a, New Orleans has a murder map and that pinpoints, and a donut hole of forms around it. The, the pe people who did it, NOLA.com, pointed it out to us one day. Said, you moved from here to there, and the donut hole opened over there. Yeah, and correlation may not be causation only because you haven't yet found how the causal you, relationship. How do you double right? blind that, right? Yeah. 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 Except that uh, I will literally have what we call in our neighborhood OGs, you know, the older yeah. drug dealers, like grab a young man by his ear and bring them to me. Oh, well, he's trying to make a buck running for me, and I told him, nope, nope, this stops with us. Like. They start, you know, again, the incarceration, they, they got to feed their families. I, until I can offer a job to them, I, I, they got to feed, feed their babies. But they're determined that the next generation won't. There's this thing that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I'm not, I'm not the first, many people have been talking about this, but the incentive structures that we have in the world and in society feel completely upside down. So on one hand, we can continue to find public money to fund private prisons. Mm -hmm. We can continue to have this 
recurring debate around uh, should there be guns, should there not be guns, should there be registries, should there not be registries. Large publicly traded corporations can get all kinds of money from the government when the time comes for either massive bailouts or tax cuts. <clears throat> and yet, here you are doing all of the actual work, you know, all the blood, sweat and tears to make a difference that is now undeniable, even anecdotally, to, I'm sure to speak to any of the kids, uh, you know, and young people have been through cross paths with you, right to, you know, what you're talking about with the murder map. And somehow society cannot orient itself to have money for that. The thing that actually has a net positive impact on everything. Like, I wonder why is it so difficult to do the right thing? Is it because there's so much money in the wrong thing that it, they want to make it more difficult to do the right thing? I, I can't understand how after your story and history and, and all the proof that you have that it would be difficult to still raise money. This story scares people to death. Why? And, and I ask the same question, so I've asked them, why does this scare you? Um, people admire you, but they don't want to be a part of something that is so frightening. It's like, it's like all the movies we see about the movements, about the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a reason there's 30 years before the movie started coming out. Sure. Because yeah. there's distance. But the people who are writing the movies and doing the movies and admire the movement, how many of them or their parents actually risked marching across the bridge? Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we shift that dynamic? Oh my gosh, if I had the answer to that. Our budget is so low. Remember, like, I have nine children. I know how to stretch a pot of red beans, okay? Our budget is, our, our ideal budget is $395,000 a year. We serve, a slow day is 40 to 50 kids. A busy day might be 80 to 100. Events, 250 to 2,000 people come to our events to get food and, you know, because we partner with other people and we, we do these things. We've never had an insurance claim, not a workers' comp claim, not an insurance claim. A lot of bruised egos on the basketball court, but you sure. know. Sure, yeah. Um, we have had 52 documented active shooter, not drills, active shooter lockdowns on our premises since we've opened. 52. 52 means there's an active shooter within four blocks or we have heard, or we've heard shots fired, or we've ducked before the bullets have come in the window. We have never had a child hurt in our center uh, because I run my hospital protocol in our lockdown. You know, everybody has a lockdown procedure. It's just now known because of the recent events. Mm. Um, and, every, and when we go, when we, we've expanded, when we expanded into the new center, we had seven, I think, in the first 90 days and now we have maybe one every six months. And that's because we get an alert that there's an active shooter within, you know, and they're like, now they're six blocks away, not across the street away. Never had a child hurt, <coughs> never had an incident at the center. 
broken up a couple of fights. We have maybe two, three fights a year. I'll put that up against any school, public, private. Uh, yeah. I, I got teenage boys and girls, and they're going to tussle. <laughs> um, I'm the one that breaks up the fights. I don't allow my employees to. Um, which tells you that if I can break up a fight between two very large 16-year-old boys, yeah, they're, <coughs> they're not really in it. To, <laughs> you know. so, so I'm just saying all this to say, I, I, the answer to your question, we are doing amazing work. My kids are doing amazing work. What I do every day, and I think this is what, where the disconnect is with the funders, and this is what I tell them. I tell them the truth. This is what I do every day. I unlock the gate, I hand out cookies and a meal, and the kids do the work. But see, funders want the name on something. <clears throat> they, want, they want to know that they have done something to save somebody. And, and uh, I get that. Ah, uh, the ego. I get that, and, and okay, <clears throat> put your name on it, I don't care. <laughs> but, but acknowledge that our kids are doing amazing things. Amazing. It just, I mean, I, I mean, let's just round it to 400,000 uh, uh -huh. a year. That's, that's eight, eight kids entering the prison system in a year, basically being paid out by the state. Yeah. I don't think this is a uniquely American situation. Maybe the specific nuance and context is, but I think this happens in many countries that even public money isn't available to the public. Right. In a supposedly free market world, these enterprises should be left to their own devices, but instead we are constantly, in some way, shape, or form, bailing them out or paying for something. And yet, here you are doing something that is transformational. You had talked about something that I thought was really uh, nuanced around creating... There was a, a statement, I'm paraphrasing what I heard yesterday, around preventing competition from becoming conflict. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that you were kind of sharing with me yesterday around putting things in close proximity of each other. I'm curious to understand, like, what is it that you do that teaches these young people these life skills? So Apex is very intentionally structured to look unstructured. Hmm. Because the child, the young adult, who's gonna walk in off the street and seriously decide, oh, no guns, I need to go put this away and come in. They're not gonna opt in to a quote unquote program. Right. It's just not something that's gonna happen. And quite frankly, I'm not either. I don't like to be programmed. I'm not like a, like, let me, oh, sign me up for that program. That's not me. <clears throat> so I get that. That's one thing we I have in common with my kids. And so, we needed to find a place, and this is, again, what our kids taught me. I, I don't know. I, being a former musician, I thought it was going to kind of look like an episode of Glee. Trust <laughs> me, it does not. Not at all. Um, you know, singing and dancing. Oh, but the kids taught me. This is what I said, what we'll do. We'll, and I would go to parks, and I would say, like, walk right up to the kids smoking weed in the thing. I'd go, what will make you put that down and come inside? You got a pool table with no quarters? I'll get you a pool table with no quarters. Um, you got cold drinks? I'll get you cold drinks. You know, these were things that we talked to the neighbors. So it needed to look like it wasn't a program. Like it was a place just to sit and breathe for a minute. Get the noise of the street out of your head for a moment. It's that simple. It's that cold simple. Cold drinks and a pool table. Cold drinks and a pool table is how we started. 
and a couple of really bad video games because they were donated because sure. people didn't want them anymore. Um, so we play nonviolent video games. Um, I just tell people, I, I'm honest with the kids, look, I've been shot, first person shooter games trigger me, so as a favor to me, don't bring any in. Okay. There's no like, like they're, they're glad to help. Oh yeah, I, I feel you, I've been shot too, it kind of bothers me, so yeah, it's cool. Is there any hesitation that these kids feel in first coming across you? Like, is there, I don't know what their experiences may have been with white America, you know, previous to you, and then they meet you. What do they make of you? Like, what do you hear from them? So some of them absolutely don't trust me at first. Um, but of the 1,200 kids who've come through our program, more than 95% of them have been referred by another student not recruited by me or assigned by the court or sent over from school. So that trust level is, and, and then the kids will introduce them to me, and so there's um, a level of trust that is established vicariously through the person that they trust. Right. Uh, and that's, again, that is also intentional. Um, when a new kid does come in because he's following the crowd, the first thing I do after handing him in cookies, ask him if he has any weapons, you know, checking in any gang colors because we don't have colors inside but we have a place you can put them because maybe you need to be safe in your neighborhood mm -hmm. um, and uh, I call one of the kids that I think they might know from their school because I we sign in look at the school up and that's who leads them and shows them the rules of apex I don't tell them the rules of apex because that's just like not cool right um, but everything in the center is intentionally placed the pool table is just a little too close to the ping pong table, which is just a little too close to the state, the game station they use for just dance, which is just a little, and the basketball game station is just a little too close to the piano. So if you want to hear both, you've got to kind of cooperate. You've got to know how to use the soft thing on the piano to, and play at different points. Mm -hmm. And when I have volunteers come in, they're like, oh, well, let me help you arrange this because you can't. I go, no, no, no. No, there's a reason. There's a reason yeah. for this. Because we have, we want the kids to walk in and go, wow, look at all this I got to play with. I, I, can, I can do anything? I go, yeah, just take turns. Like, if, you're gonna, if there's a line waiting for this, then talk to the volunteer. There's a roster you guys can use. But I put them in charge of it to, you know, 15, you have to limit yourself if there's a line or, you know, you got to start running, you know, winter plays next or something, sure, yeah. you know. So in other words, you guys set the rules, but abide by them. And here's some sheets for you, different rules you can set. We do the same thing on the basketball court. Call out your rules first. Are you playing NCAA? Are you playing NBA? Mm -hmm. Are you playing street ball? Are you playing modified street ball? Which means street ball, but here's some extra things we're going to do. Call out your rules. You set the rules. And everyone has agreed upon them. And now you're going to follow them. And that's the same thing with the rec center, with the, the rec room. Everything is just a little too close. There's all kinds of things to do. So if everyone wants to take care, to take advantage of all the assets that are available in the space, wouldn't, couldn't the world use a little bit of this? If everyone wants to take care of all of the assets that are available to all of us, wouldn't it behoove us to cooperate? And now nobody has to mark a territory because if we just communicate and cooperate, we can dance the pool table and the ping pong table can just dance a minute. The 
you know? Yeah, it just, it takes... It's very um, intentional. No, it's, it's brilliant. Introducing situations of low-risk conflict that you now have to resolve. These are skills that we don't master as adults. Everyone's competing as if they're competing for scraps all the time. But and once you've mastered that, now, you know, it might take, some kids it takes them a couple of days, some kids it takes them a couple of years. Now that noise is out of your head. You've got that skill. There's something beyond that skill, there's also a norm that you're setting that's established across that community. David spoke quite articulately about, you know, relationships don't necessarily scale, but norms do. Mm -hmm. So if the norm in your area or community or country or whatnot is just to take, 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 right? Because you, you don't know when you're gonna get it the next time, or you just wanna amass this empire of stuff for whatever reason. Someone willing to wait a little bit to give you a turn means they're probably never going to get their turn. So now they're operating from this scarcity mindset, fight or flight as well. But if you have this mutual respect for each other that we're all going to play by these rules, we are going to work this out. I am going to get my turn. I'm going to give you your turn. That norm allows you to kind of guide that dynamic. But mm -hmm. if you don't have that norm and you don't trust the other person, which that's the reality of today, we just don't trust each other. But it sounds like you're creating new norms, which is amazing because if you have... Sorry, how many kids have been through? 1,200. You've got 1,200 human beings who've gone through and established amongst themselves and probably reinforced those norms in the circles of people that they're around, which is amazing. It's really cool to watch in the neighborhood, too. It's really cool to watch the kids, like, in the front porch, you know, squash a beef. That's the vernacular mm -hmm. sure. we use. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, man, there's no reason to do that. Look, there's plenty, you know. Uh, or watching, you know, having a mom call me and go, um, my kids are like playing together again. <laughs> and, but they, they did that. But it's giving them the, I don't know, I think maybe all of us can learn from this in, in a hyper-structured atmosphere, we have no power of choice. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's boundaries at Apex. We have firm boundaries, which gives the kids this freedom to create sure. that transcends, like, I know I'm not going to fall off the cliff because there's a boundary there. So now I can be free to choose mm -hmm. because the boundaries are established and I have this freedom within boundaries. Um, and they push the boundaries. Absolutely they do because that's their job. Sure. Because they're teenagers. Yeah. And that boundary's always moving as a teenager. It's getting a little wider all the time. Our job, if we do it well, is to let them know where that boundary is, let them know when to loosen it a little bit, you know? Um, we have what we call next level, or we had before we, not at the center right now, um, next level programming where kids can opt in to go upstairs. Now those are your structured programs. It's your computer job training, your dance studio, your, sure. you know, you, you really whoop somebody's behind on the just dance and now you're ready to go with coach <laughs> upstairs and, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to do this, right? Some kids will be ready for that right away. Some kids are not. Where are you in your space? We have a basketball team that has to practice that goes to the tournaments, but you don't have to be on the team to opt into the 
pre-play and the wow. other tournaments. Okay. Those are when you're ready. Some kids, again, ready by day two. I'm, I'm ready for the team. I'm ready for the program. I'm ready for the lesson, right? Some kids need a minute. I was one of the kids that needed a minute, so. How do we, beyond your, the, sort of the particular moment you find yourself in with Apex right now, how do we see more of this happen? How do we get the sentiment that motivates you pervasive in society? Like, what do we need to do to get there? Listen, back to that first thing I said. Whether you're an individual, a church, an organization, unlock your doors. There's a world of young people out there, phenomenal young people out there, who have been labeled something that they're not, put a plate of cookies out, grill a few hot dogs in your front yard, listen. They're amazing. It will feed your soul. Don't do it to save anybody unless you need it to save yourself because that's, you know, this has saved me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've saved anybody except maybe me. But giving that space for our kids to blossom. You know, our, our kids go to charter schools where they have to walk on lines to class and be silent at lunch and we're wringing our hands why they don't have the social skills? Because we don't allow them the opportunity. Co-create. We've got kids going into computer science who believed they were going to jail because they were never, they were told they weren't good at math. But man, I'd watch them on the court and yeah, your geometry is off the charts, mm -hmm. okay? Because that's what it takes. But they'd never had an opportunity to be in a space where they could associate that. Right. Apply it in their own way. Right. Artists and we've got a recording studio and kids thought they were failing in English. I go, why are you failing in English when you're a poet? I'm not a poet. So I saw that rap you just did. That's poetry. Mm -hmm. One kid had a line told him to copyright it, so it's copyrighted, you know, <laughs> smoking my Medicaid. Yeah, because you're ADHD and you can't get your medicine and it, your money ran out because of the, and yeah. So amazing works are coming out from our kids. But see, they've been listening, they've been listening to the wrong people. They've been listening to what the world tells them. They have been listening mm -hmm. to the movie posters that says, oh yeah, I look the, like the bad guy. They've been yeah. listening to the television and the news. Mm -hmm. And, but when they have a chance to just listen to themselves, get the noise of the street out of their head, the noise of the bullets and the noise of the war that's going on that they didn't start but they're caught up in. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. It's an accident of birth that they've ended up on that block, in that city, in that circumstance. Like we're, it's just, it's, it's a roll of dice that we end up where we do. And now I live in the neighborhood, like, like I don't live on the edge on the block where I live. I live smack in the middle of the neighborhood because after we lost the house, the only place we can afford is there. Although now I'm unemployed, but um, the, yeah. So we just live together and we work together and we're going to figure out the next thing together. 
what can people do who might be listening to this to help? Go to our website, apexyouthcenter.org. You can help. And if you can't help Apex Youth Center, help Dion, who came to me after I had to announce at church that we were probably closing and we're going to have to give back the keys. And he looks at me and he pounds his chest and he said, can't nobody close Apex, Miss Lisa. I said, honey, it looks like that's what's going to happen. He goes, nope, nope, because Apex is not a place. Apex now lives in us. Can't nobody close it. So Dion, a 19-year-old boy who, oh my gosh, we have this try again tomorrow thing, like when you mess up, you're going to have to try again tomorrow. Dion was a, first year he was there, he was a multiple try again tomorrow, right? And he doesn't care if I tell a story. He has started a mini apex out of his house. Buy him some cookies, for God's sake. Thank you for sharing that, and just thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I, we need to align our like worldly actions with that feeling somehow. Um, I just, I, I still, I can't understand how people look at kids of any color or in any situation and see them as dispensable, especially someone who's a parent that supposedly loves their own child. Like I. I don't get that. I, I, somehow, some way, we have to figure out how to connect and empathize with people, even if you don't understand or agree with where they're coming from. But like, maybe it's just cookies. I, it seems so simple. Yeah. Lisa, thank you. I, I'm touched, humbled that you you chose to spend some time thank talking you. with me. I think that whatever I can do to kind of help spread the word, and I'm whatever positive energy and goodwill I have to kind of spread the word, I, I, I think you are an absolute inspiration. And every one of the kids and the people that you're working with is an inspiration along the way. And I think you've kind of shown people that we have the power to create our reality and not just be victims to it. Because I think that's an easy trap to fall into for so many of us. Your website again is? ApexYouthCenter.org. Okay, amazing. Thank you, Lisa. That's a, that's a wrap. Thank you. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter, our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.